Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols, Dad. This is episode 20, our 20th episode. I can't believe we've done 20 of these, but... Yeah, I can't. I can't either. If you say so. Well, I do. And back on January 8th, we devoted ourselves to the topic of writing. That's right. And um, we we looked at writing from 30,000 feet, if you will. And one of the things you noted on that episode was that not everyone is a writer. Writing is a skill. Uh, I would say writing is a, is a gift. And it's not a skill or a gift that everyone has. Uh, I realized when I said that I might have offended a lot of listeners, but I didn't mean it that way because obviously everybody can learn to write, you know, to comport themselves and to continue, you know, doing their work and having relationships and communication. But we're talking about writing on the level of uh, art or on the level of uh, Literature, that's another story. And obviously, some people have more talent for that than others. Everybody's not equally talented. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that. I think it's important to say that. If we, uh, we want to make the observation that people need to communicate simply to be a, a good citizen, a good member of society. But writing, the writing that we're talking about is different. It's people who are going to devote themselves in a special way or an unusual way or a particularly a good way to communicating. And we talked in that first episode about what makes good prose, and we acknowledge that there are different kinds of writing. Some writing is so plain and clear that you don't even notice it, and other writing is really ornate and beautiful, and you can't help but get caught up in the, the words themselves. And I think you mentioned that, you know, uh, you know, every piece of work sort of stands on its own. You use that terrific image of the, I think, was it the gilded frame or the ornate frame? Right, right. Or the window. Thought, or the, the window. You know, which was, I thought, was quite, quite good. So what we want to do, Dad, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, take you by surprise here. But for those of you joining Island Idols and you, you clicked on this episode, the Art of Writing Part 2, we're going to try to go a little bit uh, closer to the surface, maybe a 300-foot view on the topic of writing. And Dad, where I want to begin is I want to read two or three paragraphs of a famous book. And I just want you to listen to the prose. And I'm going to do my best to read it well. I can't promise that I'm going to read it well. You're a good reader, Aaron. And I want you, when I'm done, to just make some observations about the prose. All right? Okay, let's go. All right. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Mr. Dursley was the director of a firm called Grunnings, which made drills. 
He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very large mustache. Mrs. Dursley was thin and blonde and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck, which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time craning over garden fences, spying on the neighbors. The Dursleys had a small son called Dudley, and in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere. The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear was that somebody would discover it. They didn't think they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs. Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister, because her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were as undursleyish as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbors would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son, too, but they had never seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. Well, I'm not going to be able to identify that that's what you're asking me. I thought I thought I was going to say it could be a children's book, and it also had touches of 19th century, late 19th century descriptive qualities to it. So I've never read the Harry Potter. What do you mean what do you mean by that 19th century descriptive qualities oh, for those it, of us you know, who are not the, literature professors? There, you know, that long description of characters, giving them physical characteristics and telling you telling the reader what they're like. Like the long that that, that big neck useful right, for peering right. over your neighbor's face. And the attitudes towards the other people. And uh, it's very informative as well as being inter as well as being, you know, a kind of running commentary on the issues in the story that the writer is going to take up. Would you say that? uh, So that was the opening of the book, just the first couple of paragraphs. Would you say as an as an opening goes, it was successful? Well, I was going to say, since the listeners will probably moan when I say this, but I've never read Harry Potter. So, having given me that opening, I would say it's very conventional. Mm-hmm. It's not at all modern writing from the point of view of uh, you know a literature professor. But and that does not that's not to say that it doesn't tell a story. When you say that it's not modern writing, what 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 does it lack that modern writing would have? Well, it's too it's too detailed. It's too expressive. It's too explanatory, you see. Mm-hmm. You, but you have to understand, every reader and even every professor has a, has a taste, has different mm-hmm. tastes. Now, as a literature professor, you teach a lot of different books, so you expose readers to all different styles. But that doesn't mean you don't have your own particular preferences, right? Mm-hmm. And as you probably know, uh, my preference tends to be towards the lean and the uh, elliptical and the somewhat uh, understated style. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that that's why I said, when I first said it sounded a little like 19th century, you find this in a 19th century novel, you know, in the great writer like Dickens, you'll find it very, very clearly, you know, but uh, no, I, I did. I, I did give myself one one mark because I did have the thought that it might be something of a, a children's book. 
by children's book. I mean, written for children. I understand. Now, uh, I'm going to enter into a little bit of controversy, but I'm going to I'm going to say that I'm going to read you a few paragraphs of another book that some would say was also written for children. All right. Here we go. Are you ready? Yes. I will begin the story of my adventures with a certain morning in the month of June, the year of grace, 1751, (laughs) when I took the key for the last time out of the door of my father's house. The sun began to shine upon the summit of the hills as I went down the road, and by the time I had come as far as the manse, the blackbirds were whistling in the garden lilacs, and the mist that hung around the valley in the time of the dawn was beginning to arise and die away. Mr. Campbell, the minister of Essendine, was waiting for me by the garden gate. Good man! He asked me if I had breakfasted, and hearing that I lacked for nothing, he took my hand in both of his and clapped it kindly under his arm. Well, Davy lad, said he, I will go with you as far as the ford to set you on the way. And we began to walk forward in silence. Are you sorry to leave Essendine? said he after a while. Why, sir? said I. If I knew where I was going or what was likely to become of me, I would tell you candidly. Essendine is a good place indeed, and I have been very happy there. But then I have never been anywhere else. My father and mother, since they are both dead, I shall be no nearer to in Essendine than in the kingdom of Hungary. And to speak truth, if I thought I had a chance to better myself where I was going, I would go with a good will. Aye, said Mr. Campbell. Very well, Davy. Then it behooves me to tell your fortune, so far as I may, and so forth and so on. I suppose you know that book, Dad. Yeah, I think I do. And I would say... Now, hold on. For the listeners, this is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped. Yes. uh, Edited with a preface and notes by Barry Menikoff. Okay. The simplest thing I would say, if you compare those two passages, is that the Stevenson, as I was just saying about modernism, the Stevenson is really simpler. It is really less clogged. It is more direct, even, I would say, more conversational. The dialogue is very simple. It's very straightforward. And uh, the narrative moves much more quickly. That's what Mm -hmm. I would say. But, of Mm -hmm. course, the listeners could say I'm prejudiced. Well, it's difficult to, you know, these are, I think we would observe that these are two very popular books. I mean, both of them had great success. And I'm not, I'm not comparing, you know, Rowling to Stevenson. I'm not saying, you know, there's anything, you know, it's just different, you know. Right. And I think that's the, that's one of the things that we want to talk about today about writing. The moment we talk about what makes a good writer or what writers should do, we have to recognize that. Uh, writers break the rules and they write differently. And to some extent, you have to find your own own voice. And whether anyone wants to read your voice, well, that's another story. Absolutely. But everyone is unique. And so, and we see that right there in these two, uh, these two very popular authors, Rowling and, and Stevenson. Dad, uh, C.S. Lewis, an English professor, that you know of uh, once received a letter from a young girl asking him for some tips on writing, just some nitty gritty tips on writing. And uh, he took his correspondence seriously. And uh, his answer to her questions have been, uh, they've been circulating around and I've come across them a a couple of different times. I'm going to go through a, a list of tips that he gave. Of course, he wrote nonfiction and he wrote 
he wrote largely children's literature, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, most famous yeah. for the Chronicles of Narnia series. Right. Let me go through. We're going to check off some tips he gave one by one. You might need to contextualize it a little bit, but let's just start here and see if we can give some instruction to individuals who might be wanting to write write a bit more. All right? Certainly. Go ahead. Right. The first thing he says is, is turn off the radio. Okay. You want me to comment on that? Yeah. Writing is uh, an activity that takes place in silence, without distractions. Now, I know students in college can write when they've got their earphones on and when they've got their roommates around, but serious writing really requires pretty much uh, a calm, a stable environment. This is why libraries always have signs say, hush, don't speak. Old libraries anyway. Libraries, we, where you do, and, and people write in them, right there. I would say it's a, it's a tip of the hat to our mortality. We simply can't do everything. You know, we, we have a mind which is amazing but limited, and to accomplish something great uh, requires focus, and it's a kind of focus that you're not going to have if, you are, uh, if you're distracted. I'm not a multitasker, and writing is not something I can do it. At the same time, I'm doing something else. I don't see how you can, right. because your mind is focused yeah. constantly on, on the work, on what you're trying to say. His second tip is read all the books you can. Read all the books you can. This is, I think we, I think we mentioned this in the first episode on writing. This is a common observation made by all writers. And by the way, I went and, I went and secured some tips on writing from other writers unbeknownst to you or to that you were doing the same thing and everybody will say the same thing read everything and stevenson of course as we said in the first broadcast is the most is the one who's most famous for this because he used the phrase the sedulous eight he says i played the sedulous eight meaning he read everything he could and copied it not that he copied the style but he learned what other writers were doing so that's a given. It's difficult for me to lead in it to lead in a conversation about fiction, writing fiction, because I, I just haven't done it. I, I write so much nonfiction. But one of the things that I've noticed, especially in my own in my own life earlier, is that I would read. I'd read a lot, and what I'd find is 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 a good number of block quotations in my writing. I had a difficult time not trying to bring what I was reading and quote large chunks of what I was reading uh, in in my own writing. It was, uh, and I was wondering if you could, I'm sure you've noticed that in essays that you've graded over the years. I, I'm wondering if you could explain, I know you're not a, a psychologist, but I wonder if you could explain why, especially young writers tend to do that and why it's really not helpful. Well, I can talk about this. Let's, uh, let's talk about it from these from the point of view of scholarship or writing in universities, which mm-hmm. is not fiction, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and fiction writers are not concerned with block quotations. So we're really talking about nonfiction writers or create, you know. Mm-hmm. And for academics, block quotations are really the uh, bread and butter or the foundation of their writing. It's a way of uh, ballast, giving ballast to what they're saying. So they make an observation or a comment and said, why, 
why is the ocean having so much, you know, uh, why is it, why is it churning so much now? And then they'll go and there'll be a block quotation from some scientific, you know, a, a scientific paragraph that gives an explanation to their general observation. So the block quotations just keep running and running and running because you're afraid to say something by yourself without trying to, you know, give it support make sure there's an eye beam there that's holding it in check. That is the bane of academic writing. Because the truth of the matter is most people, when they're reading, you know, they glaze over all those. Once they see the block quotations, your eyes start to glaze, and maybe Mm -hmm. they'll start to read it. But now, academic writing is, uh, you know, and even essays, you read essays in, 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 in magazines, you know, they're always, they're pundits, they're writing something and then they want to, they want to tell you that what they said is really true. So they'll find some mm-hmm. source to give it a quote to, to quote it from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would say, and I'm going to say something that's a little bit uh, self-aggrandizing, but I can't help it. The last book in Stevenson that I wrote, you know, that I edited, David Balfour, which was a sequel to mm-hmm. Kidnap, which you read the opening passage of. So I wrote a long introduction to it, just kind of a monograph called The Lonely Trials of David Balfour. And it's, I would say, I don't know how many words it is. It was quite long, the introduction. I mean, so we're talking about over 20,000 words, maybe. And I realized there's not a single block quotation in that entire piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think you think it's something that, that, that really young, I mean, you're no. saying academics do it. Yeah. Um, well, students of course do it in class in college. That's, that's all they do because they don't have any, they don't have any confidence that there's anything that they yeah. really can say that they know. And so they wind up doing this and they get, they get, you know, the professors mm-hmm. keep hammering them to say, well, prove what you're saying. So how do they know how to prove it? So they go looking for something that supports. So when we say, you know, read all, when we agree, we agree with this council, read all the books you can, but not so that you can copy them, so that your mind can be engaging with other writers and with other thoughts and other ideas. Okay, what about this, Dad? Write for the ear. He said, write for the ear. What do you think about that? What does that mean and what do you think about it? I think it's great. (laughs) Because uh, that's what Stevenson did. Because... You, in order to get, to, in order so that your writing does not sound stilted, uh, you have to be able to to be able to hear it. In other words, you have to write and be able to. If you're writing in a way that you don't speak, it's already going to be stilted. Mm-hmm. And this is what's mm-hmm. happened with old books that people, that students when they get when you get something, they say, "Well, read an old book," and they read an old book and they can't read it because it's so boring and it's so formal. It doesn't sound like anything that they mm-hmm. the way that people talk. Writing over time has become more informal, mm-hmm. but anyway, mm-hmm. writing for the ear means that you can write a sentence so that if you spoke that sentence, it would sound good. Or read mm-hmm. it. Somebody would hear it and say, "Boy, that's that sounds terrific," uh, and it it reduces perhaps. But of course, you have to have a good ear. I mean, that goes without saying. I think it, it does force you if you're. Well, you know, I preach. I'm constantly delivering messages, so I I write for the ear uh, vocationally, if you will. 
And it, it I'd say it, it forces you to think about how the reader or the listener is going to receive what what you are expressing as well. Um, it forces you to put yourself in the in the in the in the shoes of the of the audience, and that that can be helpful for clarity. You know, I'll give you an example of a writer, a writer who people is difficult. William Faulkner. Okay. If you picked up a Faulkner novel, you know, a, a, even a, a smart person would have a little bit of difficulty. You can't just pick it up and read it. However, if you picked up that Faulkner novel and you started reading it out loud, you would discover it's a lot more comprehensible than it is when you're just reading it silently. Because well, and that's true even of, even of Shakespeare, right? I mean, similarly, of Shakespeare, really difficult, but read it out loud and... You know, try to try to let it be the play that it was intended to be, and you might find you understand more than you thought. Uh, that's a, I think that's absolutely right. But uh, that's I, I think Faulkner and even late Henry James, who who dictated James dictated his late books, and if you read them out loud, you can't read the whole book out loud. But if you read sentences out loud, you suddenly lo- it suddenly doesn't seem as opaque or baroque as we ordinarily think of it. All right. What about this? Only write about what interests you. Well, that's, of course, a, uh, that's, of course, you know, a dictum that, uh, that you get in, in, in writer's classes. There are some people like Annie Prue, who's a very great contemporary writer, who says that's ridiculous. I mean, you have to go out and learn things and you have to find mm-hmm. out different things and you write about them. But for most people, I mean, if you're writing and you have to be writing about something that that you that grabs your attention, that grabs your interest, you can't just go and make up a story about nothing. You know, Lewis doesn't list this, but I want to throw in something that I've heard before, and I'm very interested in what you think about it. It's the counsel, write about what you know, write about what you know. Well, that's the same thing as write about what interests you, isn't it? I guess I always thought about it like um, I sometimes I read I, I read a book and someone or I, maybe I I imagine I'm going to write about life in New York in the 1920s and I wouldn't know where to begin I'd have to go to the library and I'd have to get books and it would be a lot of work but if I sat down and described what it was like in 1980 to live in Hillsborough, Oregon That's right. and to hop on my Huffy or Schwinn bicycle and go up the wide sidewalks along river road past, you know, past the, uh, the trailer park. I mean, I know that. And I, I assume I could write that in a way that just would have a detail that sort of pops because I know it. And I, I thought that's what it meant. Well, I and mean, partly it is that. I mean, you you know, if you you know, so much fiction really. When people first write fiction, I mean, it tends to be autobiographical. They're writing about their own lives and they're writing about the stories of where they came from and what they knew, the people they knew, and mm-hmm. then they give it fiction. They they say it's fiction because it's not me, but in a way, it's what they know. This is what they mm-hmm. know, and. Uh, Sometimes they then move forward and then they want to write about other things. And then that we have to do research, you see. So if you take that book, Kidnapped, I mean, Stevenson didn't live in the 18th century. Right. So he's writing about something that he did a lot of research for. 
you know, he's writing about an old trial and old history. And that's a professional writer. I mean, that's part of the process. Right. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to lump these next three together. Uh, we don't really need to talk about them much. I think we talked about them a fair bit last time, but I'll just, I'll read them aloud and uh, you can tell me if you want to talk about any of them. Take great trouble to be clear. Save all your work. Don't throw drafts away. And don't use a typewriter. What do you mean, don't use it? You mean write by hand? Well, I think that's a little bit we talked about a number of months ago. Uh, I, I, I prefer, at least with my sermons, to, to write a draft in a pencil. And so I think he's saying he was advising writers not to type their I mean, that's, a, uh, that's already, I would say that's a personal thing. Because, you know, we live in an age when people grow up with keyboards. I grew mm-hmm. up with a typewriter. It doesn't mean writing by hand doesn't have certain advantages. We talked about this last time. And I, you know, there are times when I think I do want to, I do write by hand, you know, but by and large, you can't set somebody, you're going to write a long project. You have to do it all in, all in manuscript. Now I did. Here's the story. My first book, Robert Louis Stevenson and the Beach of Star, was all written out by hand. And why did that happen? Because I was in the library, I started writing, and then I got superstitious. <laughs> I had the pages in front of me, and I started piling the pages up. And so I kept doing that. But that's an unusual thing. The last bit of advice he gives is one that I do want you to talk about, because I, I know how careful you are. And I think this is an interesting bit of counsel, because he doesn't say he doesn't say use simple words, but he says this. Be sure you understand every word you use. Oh, I can I can go along with that. And I can I can riff on that. Yeah, because please. one of the things I would say is you have to have a dictionary. You have to write with a dictionary. And by writing with a dictionary, I don't mean you go looking for five dollar words or twenty-five dollar words. You have to write with a dictionary because you have to constantly Make sure that the words you're using, words that you know, are precisely have precisely the meaning that you think they have. Mm-hmm. Now, I you say, well, you're an ex professor. Whether you needed, I I have a dictionary on my computer when I'm writing, and I always check words that I know because words have so many different meanings. And a single word, a complex word can have four or five different meanings. And you want to make sure that the precise meaning you're trying to, that you want, is exactly what that word means, not one that, not, not what you think it does. And so, I mean, some people say you have to have a thesaurus as well, but basically a dictionary is essential. So I would go along with that. Robert Louis Stevenson said one thing. There's another Stevenson point. He said one thing about about himself to a reporter. He says, I'm not a sloven, S-L-O-V-E-N, meaning he is very exact in every word he uses. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're quite comfortable talking about the exactness of professional athletes. Mm-hmm. They, study, they study the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I love basketball, and I know that good basketball players – they know what they can do with their left hand. They know what they can do with their right hand. They study their opponent's reaction when someone drives to their right or to their left. I mean, they're they're experts. And a writer is going to have that same kind of uh, take a, a, a deliberate approach to the, the, the diction, the word choice that 
that he or she uses. So I think that, and I think that frees you up from thinking that, you know, you, your words have to be simple. It's not that they have to be simple. It's not that you can't use a difficult word or a challenging word, but it means you just need to know what that word is there for. Well, one of the tips that I have from P.D. James, P.D. James was a English writer famous for her mysteries, one of the most, you know, highly regarded mystery writers of the late 20th and early 21st century. She says, increase your word power. Words are the raw material of your craft. The greater the, your vocabulary, the more effective your writing. And the point, to, the point to make is not to go out of your way to use unusual words. It's to know that the words you're using are the ones that mean what you want to say and to have enough vocabulary that you can find the words that you want. And I think one of the only ways to do this is when you do come across a word you don't know, to take a moment and look it up. Well, you know, you're talking to somebody who's a great, you know, uh, proponent and believer in dictionaries. So are there any other um, tips that you, you, you glean from your reading or that you've just appreciated over the years that you would share? Well, I mean, I would say these same things. For, for one thing, you have to learn to omit Omission. People think that getting the words down are the most important thing, but the important thing is to make sure you get rid of the words that are unnecessary. And omission is really a skill that develops with, with time. I mean, writing is learned. I mean, and good writers can get better, you see. And some of the things that you want to learn are very simple. I mean, you have to learn to, you know, to not rely on adjectives and adverbs. That's, that's a given. Everybody, you know, feels, I mean, that's the most, that probably is the most common experience of young writers is to rely on adverbs and adjectives, you know, to, 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 to qualify or compound what they want to say. And you have to get rid of those. Adverbs and adjectives are really the bane of writing. And you also have to learn to leave out words that uh, just add to the sentence, but that you really don't serve a purpose. Usually they tend to be qualifiers. You want to say something and you want to intensify it or qualify it. You know, you think the reader has to make sure that, you know, it is the most important experience I have ever had in my entire life. You can Mm -hmm. see right there in that sentence, how many of those words are unnecessary or are just duplicative, you know? So that Mm -hmm. this comes with experience, but you have to be aware of it. You have to be, and, and of course, it's very hard. The hard thing is to learn to not to be, to get rid of cliches and, you know. Yeah, what, what about that? I've, uh, so many people say never use a metaphor or a simile that you've, that you've, you've already read in print. Uh, I no, guess that's like hard as, hard as a rock. Well, but that's, that's already a cliche. By metaphors that, you know, you know. You have to find a way not to re- not to resort to uh, trite writing. That's tr- a cliche is something that's really a dead image, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, dead as a doornail. I mean, man, maybe when somebody first came up with that, it might have been original, but it's hardly original now. Now, if you came up and said, "Dead men don't bite," that's a little more. Mm, original because mm-hmm. i didn't mm-hmm. make that up that's a, that's i'm quoting somebody what about the council to um replace generalities with specifics 
or to be as that's or, to be as concrete. That's as, what E.B. White and Strunk say in Elements of Style: be concrete. It's not always easy to be concrete, mm-hmm. but you know you can tell well how hard it is when you just read the newspaper and you read comments that are being transcribed by politicians or academics, and it all sounds like boilerplate. You know, mm-hmm. two and three and four syllable words, and, and it just goes on and on and on, and much of which doesn't say anything because they're not being concrete; they're being abstract. They don't want to come out and say something directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And official language and general language tends to be rather, you know, rather abstract and rather, you know, meaningless, really. And the reason you want concrete language is because you want to express something precisely and specifically. Now, people don't like that because sometimes it sounds too blunt. And that's why an official conversation people Mm -hmm. they use euphemisms they use uh, ways of getting away from that can you give an example of a more specific or concrete way of saying something that would be evocative or or punchy in in writing well i I mean be hard to say i looked her in the eyes and i told her exactly what i thought and then you meet and you have a very concrete statement Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and, and if and how imaginative you are how concrete you are that is is you know is the start the effort you know is the success of your writing you know rather than going mm-hmm. on and saying oh and i thought you were the most wonderful person i had ever come across in my entire life and you did this and it was so attractive and that's, that's very general yes very general. yes yes how important is it to know your audience you hear that a lot know your audience i don't buy that but then i'm maybe i may be an outlier for that you can't you don't know who your audience is going to be so you have to write what you want to write you have to be able to, the people who the people who look to audiences are really formulaic writers you know if you're writing a mystery novel or you're writing a romance novel or you're writing a particular kind of memoir or in a genre there's an audience for those kinds of books and you're addressing that audience but if you're trying to write something for yourself that's original, you have to find your voice and you have to find a way of expressing it. And you can't worry about who's going to read it because you don't know and you don't know how, you don't know what they're going to respond to. I know we're talking about being specific, but let me ask a general question because you've you've uh, you've studied and taught so many famous authors, uh, and maybe we talked a little bit about this in episodes before. But how many authors were really not appreciated or severely underappreciated when they were alive? How many authors that we that we think about now as just being giants simply were not giants when they actually were writing? Well, of course, we talked about this with Thoreau. Mm-hmm. Melville, of course, is the great example. Henry James was had a, had a certain appreciation early in his career, but then you know, it disappeared from the world and there were a few, you know, and then he had a small cult following. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, I mean, if you look at modern writers, I don't know how appreciated uh, Virginia Woolf was, frankly. Uh, even D.H. Lawrence, I mean, after the success of his uh, Sons and Lovers, I mean, he was certainly not, uh, these were not best-selling authors, but I don't know if you mean somebody who nobody knew anything about 
Well, I just think I just think in general it's interesting. I think that we assume these good writers were just, you know, the talk of the town their entire lives. And uh, it seems like there's just an awful lot of examples of of writers not being appreciated when they were alive and it took it took another generation to really appreciate them. It just seems like there's something instructive, you know, for for someone who wants to write or someone who wants to be published. It seems like there's something instructive about that. Literary history is can be a minefield. I mean, and then writers and uh, writers can be very successful and then disappear, even though they're very good. Like I like how many people read Irwin Shaw. Irwin Shaw was a very popular writer in his lifetime. I mean, he was a bestseller. He was his writing was so successful that he was able to live, you know, a jet set life. Mm-hmm. Now nobody even knows who Irwin Shaw is, really. But yet. The Young Lions or Rich Man, Poor Man or one of the, some of the great short stories that he wrote for the New Yorker are marvelous. So what happened to Irwin Shaw, you see? And there are so many writers. Actually, I would say that during the period of, that, I, of that I came of age in, in the 1950s, there were numerous popular writers who were very, very good. Nobody even knows their names today. So it's a, it's a, uh, it goes both ways. It's a hard world. Dad, this may be a hard question for you to answer because I know that, you know, you've, I don't think you've done creative writing yourself. And is that wrong? Am I, well, am I right? Well, I, I will answer that sort of in respect to that. Your whole career in the, in the university is not considered creative writing. You're doing scholarship, right? But I would say, mm-hmm that scholarly writing is creative. Not too many people in the scholarly world would say that, but I came to believe that. I spent a lot of time with my scholarship to make the writing accessible so that somebody could read it who was not necessarily a literary scholar. Okay. Most academics don't write that way. And then, of course, when I came to write uh, Stone Mother, I mean, I consider that a creative, e- creative enterprise. Writing. Well, the reason why I bring it up is I recently read a book called Write Better by um, Andrew LePew, and he, he was a, a, the editor of a, of a publishing company. And he, he made the observation that, you know, readers aren't logic machines. We're not, we're not machines. We're not computers. We're emotional beings. And writing should engage the emotions. And uh, it's very difficult. How would you how would you instruct someone on how to do that? I mean, should writing engage the emotions? Is is it something you should try to do? Well, of course you're doing it. Of course you're engaging the emotions when you're when you're creating when you're creating a story. I mean, how could you not be engaged? I mean, it's it's it, otherwise the writing would have no life to it. I mean, what gives writing life? What gives it life is the story and the expression that is conveyed by the story. And how could that happen without somebody investing herself into that process? Now, you also Mm -hmm. have to have, you know, your rational mind working so you don't make it, so you don't use, so, so that you can see you're overriding or you're being excessive at a certain place so you're able to cut, and edit and revise. This is why editing and revising is such an important part of the writing process. 
But when you start, you you have to get material out, and people write different ways. I, I, there's no there's no set formula. I tend to write where I finish. By the time I finish a paragraph, I've revised it over and over and over again, and then I go forward so that when my draft is done, my draft is really revised. Now, other people would say you should just write straight through and revise at the end and go back. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I mean, everybody has their own their own method that they that they're comfortable with, and they then they find uh, works for them. So, Dad, as we as we head to the finish line in that first episode, we we spoke about writing. I said from thirty thousand feet. Here we've gotten into the weeds a little bit, three thousand or three hundred feet or something. I want to end going up really high, like three hundred thousand feet. Whoa! And uh, yeah, exactly. And I want to ask you the question, a little bit more philosophical. Um, why why does writing matter? Why should why should people, some people, give themselves to the task of of writing? And perhaps perhaps I don't need to qualify it anymore. I mean, it could be applied to nonfiction. It could be applied to fiction. I, I'm not I'm not talking merely about you know, preserving history, but it is an art. Why, why is it so important? Well, I, all I can do is, uh, is, is resort as an English professor would to an old, you know, to a great writer in the past, Samuel Johnson, who said the uh, greatness of a people, of a culture, of a civilization comes from its authors. And he didn't be by authors just novelists or playwrights. He meant philosophers and and, and scientists and what we would call sociologists, theologians, because those people writing give us insight into ourselves and into the world we're living in. That's I mean, that's the simplest way of saying why do we read Dickens? We don't read Dickens because, you know, we want to have a happy uh, Christmas. We read him because he tells us something about ourselves and about the world that we wouldn't know otherwise. And uh, great writers, great authors do that, whether they're philosophers, whether they're historians, whether they're novelists, whether they're playwrights. They tell us something about ourselves that we can't get any other way. And this is one of the things, and here's the pitch at the end. This is one of the reasons it's very it's very foolish for universities to cut down on their humanities courses because this is where students learn about themselves and about the world. It doesn't have to be something that's that that's going to teach them how to you know how to how to write code is something that you can't live without that i love I love your answer, and it takes me back to the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter one which is this account of creation and God creates Adam and Eve and Adam is given a charge and the charge is so common. You know, most everyone has heard it be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. And, and theologians refer to that as the, as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And the, the idea is that, that God has created all of this stuff. Uh, he's created uh, the mountains and the seas and humanity. And then it's, it's up to us 
to to steward it and to create art and to create culture and by by creating culture by civilizing uh the world we we give glory to the author of humanity from a judeo christian perspective but we really are we really are uh, preserving what has been created and so when i when i think about um an author who who paints a portrait of a landscape at the beginning of a chapter with words i think a little bit of god's creation has been preserved in the in the mind and in the words of an amazing artist and it's going to last you know for a long time and uh, just as as god creates we get to create with words so that's a theologian's perspective on the art of writing there is something there's something divine about about this task of creating culture well of course you know there's a long tradition of create of of divinity and poetry being aligned together going back to the classical writers but without getting into it i want to i want to refine i the johnson quotation the glory of a people derives from its authors that's what johnson had said you know well there you go there you go so the art of writing part 2 episode 20 dad uh amazing and uh, here we are season 2 and uh, uh we're going to continue these conversations and uh, it's good to see you all the way in Honolulu Hawaii and um I look forward to talking to you soon dad it's good to see you Aaron thanks all right take care